your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians. And I want you to begin with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And boys and girls, as you are turning there, and men and women as you're turning there, boys and girls, I am so thankful that you are here. And boys and girls, I want you to know that you have been prayed for throughout the week. Boys and girls, you need to know that you've been prayed for today before the worship service. And to boys and girls, I have a challenge for you. Okay, if you have a pen in your hand and a piece of paper near you, I have, older people, hold on, I'm going to give more detail in a little bit, but boys and girls, I have nine points in my sermon today. So boys and girls, if you want to try to get those, and then you can show me at the end of our time what you were able to write down and what you were able to catch from the nine points. But older people, you didn't hear that. I'm going to mention that more in my sermon here in a little bit. Ephesians. Chapter 5, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 by way of introduction to our time today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. One more time, let's pray. Father, help us, we pray. I have prepared a lot for this. Oh God, help me. God, help me. Help me to preach clearly and powerfully. I am so weak, but I depend upon your power. Lord, we as a church family are eager to hear from your word. We want to hear from you. We want to be submissive to your word, never, never sitting in judgment over your word. So, Father, as you would direct us as to what a church is and what a church is to be and what a church is to do and how we function in the church, oh, Father, in your love, bring conviction where we need conviction and bring comfort, oh, Lord, where we need to be comforted. In Jesus' name, amen. Jenny was sitting in a membership interview with the elders of a new church. The opening time of the interview was quite routine, and it was very encouraging. She recounted her childhood and and how sort of in her high school years, she had grown a little bit distant from the Lord and distant from the church and distant from her Bible. And then she went to college, and her, her years were just filled with this prodigal living, as she described it, just far from God, far from the Word, far from Christian living. But then in the interview with these church elders, she then lit up with joy and she said, but then the Lord in his mercy saved me. And then the Lord sought me and he found me and and he redeemed me. And it happened in a little hometown church, a little local church where I grew up. It was a very small church. It was an unpopular church. But oh, it was so faithful to the Lord. And, And then at one point, the pastor in that membership interview, he asked the interviewee, well, well, how did that church help you grow as a new believer? Well, they weren't ready for what happened. Her head hung in shame and fear, and she began sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. She said, as a new believer, I expected and I wanted the church to help me grow. 
I thought that somebody would have taken me under their wing. And I was, it was like I was put in a corner somewhere and nobody reached out to me and nobody helped me and nobody discipled me and nobody interacted with me and nobody taught me. I just wanted somebody to mentor me as I grow in the ways of God. She said, it's as if the churches wanted me to figure things out on my own. I sat alone and nobody reached out to me. I was terrible. I was lonely. And yet I wanted to be faithful and I wanted to learn and I wanted to be involved. But it just seemed so lonely. Have you ever met a Jenny? You ever met somebody like that? What do you say to somebody like this? Where, where, where would you begin? What, what scriptures would you give to her? How, how would you encourage her? How, how would you teach her? What would you say to her in that membership interview? I mean, there's so much we would love to say to the church and their role to come alongside of her. And yet there's much that we would love to say to Jenny and her role in actively and being a little bit proactive and plugging into the church. But what would you and I say to a Jenny? What is the church? You ask yourself this question, what am I supposed to be doing in my church? And how, how can I, as an individual member in this church, how can I contribute to the positive health of my local church? I have a little book on my shelf. It's a very helpful little book on the local church. And in the introduction, here's what it says. We need to have the mindset where we move away from the I want mentality. And we need to cultivate I will serve. Mentality. It's easy to say, well, I want this and I want that and I wish it was this way and I want it that way and I want them to do this. And it's easy to do that. But that can very easily bring a root of bitterness and a spirit of divisiveness and a heart of anger. No, we, we don't want a, a, a I want mentality. We want a I will serve. I will plug in. I will be involved. I will serve and choose to love. We read in the word of God that Jesus Christ nourishes and cherishes his church in Ephesians 5.29. And I would make the argument, so must we. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, we read that Jesus is walking among the churches. Now, private quiet time is important. I believe in it. You do that. That's important. But there's a unique way that the power and presence of Jesus is with the people of God when we meet together as a church. Revelation, the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 makes that clear. That Jesus is here with us. And he regulates how we are to worship him. He tells us how he is to be worshipped. And he tells us in the word. And I love how the New Testament pictures the church with so many metaphors, so many pictures describing the church. And, and there are so many, but let me just recount a few of them. The Bible describes the church like a family. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. The New Testament describes the church as branches of a vine that are connected to that vine. 
The New Testament describes the church as a field of crops, as a building where brick upon brick upon brick upon brick is building. We, we read in the New Testament about how the church is a harvest, how the church is a new temple, how the church is like a priesthood, how the church is the very house of God, and how the church is the body of Christ. So many images and so many metaphors. I'm sure there's many more that we could mention in terms of what the New Testament says about the church. But as we, as we begin our study in the church from the book of Ephesians here today, we have to remember the impact and the directional focus of the church. Now, if you have a pen, I want you to jot these down because I would plead with you to pray for these, that we would be faithful to these. Four dimensions or four directions of the church. Number one, upward. We have to have the upward dimension. We are here to worship God. We are not here, first of all, to engage in social relationships or to feel better about ourselves or just to sort of reach out to the culture. We are here to worship our God first. So after the upward dimension, then we have second, the inward dimension, inward with each other. Our duty is to love one another, to serve one another, to edify one another, to pray for each other, upward and then inward with each other. Let me give you the third dimension. Third, there's the forward dimension. You see, we don't just dwell on the past and say, man. My life has been a disaster. Look at our culture and our world and all that's happened. No, no, no. We are forward-oriented people. We are marching as soldiers onward to heaven. We We are persevering and we are continuing on to glory. And nothing can hinder us as we persevere in Christ onward and forward till glory. So we want to be upward, we want to be inward, we want to be forward, but this is also important. Number four, we must be outward. We must be outward. We are here, yes, to worship God, to love one another, to march toward glory, and we are here to proclaim the gospel to a world that is desperately hopeless. Unless God intervenes. So, so pray for this. All of these are vital that we would be an upward oriented people, an inward oriented people, a forward oriented people, and an outward oriented people. And when we talk about the church, we have to be careful what we read and how we talk about it because we must clarify. First of all, there is the universal church. That is believers who are all around the world trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer who has been brought into relationship with God by the work of the Holy Spirit are part of the universal church. But there's also these local churches. Local assemblies comprised of men and women who are believers, and each local church will have biblical, qualified male leadership. It will have the preaching of the Word of God. It will have the practice and the commitment to church discipline. And it will have the right practice of the ordinances like baptism and what we'll do tonight with the Lord's Supper as well. So the universal church and then many local churches, local assemblies of believers all around the world. 
And when we talk about the church, there are so many New Testament truths about the church. Let me just encourage you with a few. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus will build his church and the very forces of hell will never destroy it. So somebody might say, well, Pastor Jeff, how are you going to build your church? And I laugh and I say, I can't. Jesus is going to build his church. It's not my job to get people in and to save people and to bring them in and to grow the church. It's not my job. My job and your job is to be faithful. He will build his church. 1 Corinthians 1-2, the church is the saints of God comprised of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, Jesus Christ is the head over his church. So Pastor Jeff doesn't run this church. The elders don't run this church. The, the one who runs and rules and makes the authoritative decisions over the church is Jesus. And he does so by the word of God. He is the head over his church. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the household of God. It's the household of the living God, and we are a pillar and a support for the truth. Now, remember that tomorrow morning when people come to you and there's lies and the media might present lies and people are hurt by lies. And you say, wait a minute, our church is the pillar of the truth. We've got truth here. We have truth for a world that is just living and drowning in deceit and lies. In Acts chapter 14, verses 23 to 27, the church gathers to pray, to fast, to testify, to be edified, and to go on in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Isn't that great? Christian, you might have your down days and your difficult days and your discouraging days, but Jesus always leads you in triumph. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So I want to look at the book of Ephesians with you and flesh out a little bit more detail as to what the church is. And I'm so burdened by this because there's so much that goes on in the name of church that has nothing to do with what the Bible says a church is. So what is the church and what is the church to begin to do? And I want to look at the book of Ephesians, really kind of surveying the book and looking at different sections in the book to provide you a biblical understanding of the church. So if you're taking notes, here's my thesis for the day. I want to give you a biblical understanding of the church by showing you God's divine design. And I want to show you this in nine Ways, Nine ways. Now, I have prayed that God would help me to edit well on the fly because I have way too much here. But I trust the Lord will give us much grace so that we can understand a biblical perspective of the church. Let me just begin with the first heading. We're just going to walk through these together. And each of these nine points begin with the church is. The church is, the church is, nine times. Number one, the church is the saints of God. The saints of God. And for this, we have to look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians. And I understand that, you know, sometimes we say, hey, come to our church. You know, boys and girls, let's go to church today. As if we're kind of going to the building where we have church. But 
Let's remember, if we're a little bit more clear, we don't just go to a building that is a church. We are actually going to gather with the church, and we're gathering as the church. That's a little bit more accurate if we're going to be specific about it. The church is comprised of saints. It is not the Roman Catholic Church that makes someone a saint. That has nothing to do with what a saint is biblically. A saint, according to the Bible, is a true Christian. Every true Christian is a saint. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are the faithful or the believers in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes and you just wrote down, the church is the saints of God, here's the key word you got to get. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a catchy word in our culture, but we got to get it biblically. The word is identity. Your identity is not who you were. Your identity is not that you're a married man or a single man or a single woman or a married woman. That's not your true identity. If you're a Christian, your identity is that you are a saint of God. You're a believer in God. The church is not a place. It's the people. The church is not a location. It's the children of God. And when Paul says in verse 1, I'm writing to the saints, it's the word holy ones. I'm writing to you who are holy ones because you have taken on the likeness from God through Jesus Christ at the moment of your conversion. So if you're a Christian here today, you're a saint. The very moment you were saved, you were a saint. And you're going to be a saint until the day the Lord mercifully and gloriously carries you into heaven. The identity is that you are saints. Paul says in verse 1, at Ephesus. That's a dark culture. That's a dark pagan city. And then he calls them who are faithful or they are the believers in Christ. So while we are living in this unholy world, we are walking in holiness because we are covenantally united to Jesus Christ for salvation. Christian, this is your identity. You might have employment and you might lose your job. You might have great health and then a terminal illness may invade. You may have a wife or a husband or children, then you may lose your family. Your identity is not bound to all of those. Your identity is inseparably connected to Christ. So when Paul begins the letter by saying, I'm writing to the saints, we have to remember that the church is the saints of God. This is our identity. This is who we are. We are the holy ones of God. So I sometimes will tell my children, we get to go to be with the church. And we get to worship God as the church. It's not the building. We could go to a barn. We could go to a basement. We could go to a field. But so long as we are together as the people of God, the church is, number one, the saints of God. Number two in your outline, if you're taking notes, as we continue to look at what the Bible says about the church, number two, the church is the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit, and we're going to look at chapter four for this. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about unity. I was just reading earlier today about this new movement, Chrislam. You know, Islam and Christianity and Judaism all sort of forging together and having some new world religion. There's all kinds of talk about unity in our day. Unity on a sports team and unity on a team project at work and playing the part in unison when you're in a symphony. There's all this about unity, how it is best displayed in the church. The key word here is the word one, one. In Acts 2, 46, believers had one mind. In Romans 15, 5 and 6, with one accord, with one voice, we can glorify our God. In Philippians 1, 27, Paul said, we stand in one spirit and with one mind. Now, you might have a different preference than I do about something. You might have a different opinion about something than I do. We're not talking about oneness and unity in all of our opinions. We're talking about oneness and unity in the gospel. Look at chapter 4. And look at how Paul brings this out. Number one, it's unity in the call. Verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Look at your conduct. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's unity in this call of God. There's unity In our conduct toward each other. But look at verse 4. Don't miss the repeated word here in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, do you see the key word there? The word is one. The Spirit of God produces gospel unity, and it is your job and my job to preserve and maintain the unity. We always have unity in the truth. But where there's no truth, there can be no unity. So hear us very carefully. The truth, what the Bible teaches, is not unity at all costs. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not let's just all get along and have unity with everybody. We can have unity insofar as the gospel is there. We have gospel unity. There's one body of Christ, one spirit of God, one hope of salvation, one Lord, one faith at his body of doctrine, one baptism into the body of Christ. There's one God and father. This is who we are. We're in this together. We are a body. I was reading... Uh, A story about years ago, years ago in Texas, there was a a church that was on the verge of a split. I mean, everybody felt it. It was even uncomfortable when people would come on Sunday to church. And there was a man who was on the staff who was so arrogant and so prideful. And he was so self-willed, he was just going to split the church right down the middle. It was a terrible situation. I was reading about this and wondering, well, what's going to happen? And as I continue to read about this, the pastor was, was praying and seeking the Lord. What do I do? He had kneeling benches installed in every single pew. And he took a large portion of each Sunday worship service. And he said, we're going to take time and we're going to kneel before God. 
We're going to ask for humility. And not our preferences, but for the gospel to be preserved. We're going to remember that in the gospel, there's unity. There's a oneness in the gospel. Well, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the pastor led the church in going down to their knees and praying. And God mercifully, over time, healed the rifts. Why? Because unity is what God wants. Unity brings glory and honor to Christ. That's what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed that there would be a great unity among his people. So the church is unity. It's unity. But if you're taking notes, let me give you a third. A third reality of the church. Number three, this is so great. And and, and our world... Church family, hear this. Our world will take what the Bible teaches here and our world flips it on its head. Number three, the church is the elimination of all barriers. We're going to look at Ephesians 2. The church is the elimination of all barriers. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? You and I understand rivalries, don't we? We we, we understand enmities and hostility. I mean, you've got Republican And you've got Democrats. You've got the iPhone and you've got the Android. You've got the PC and you've got the Mac. St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago Cubs. But in biblical times, far more than any of that was Jew and Gentile. They hated each other. They hated each other. It was the greatest rivalry. Jew and Gentiles, they hated each other's guts. And now in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, here's the key word. It's the word peace. Well, how in the world are we going to have peace with people with whom we have rivalries? How do we get along with people who are, hear this, so different from us? Isn't it so cool? You think about Christ Fellowship Bible Church and, and there's, there's people who are unlike me and you. Age, background, language, culture, season of life, context, preferences. I mean, we're different. But how is there peace when there are so many differences? There's only one answer. And it's not what our world will say. Here's how we have peace. It's what God says. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. Gentiles, you were far from God. But not not only were you excluded, now you can be included. Look at 13. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. I remember years ago going to Ferguson when the Michael Brown shooting happened with others from the church, and we took tracks and we were ready to preach the gospel, we had some great conversations. Why? Because we knew the only way reconciliation can happen 
is through the gospel of Christ. Our world doesn't know that. There's all kinds of talk about coming together and reconciliation. But you and I have the answer right here in the scriptures. Jesus is our peace who made both groups into one and he broke down the barrier. Verse 16, he reconciles them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. What a God. What a gospel, what a savior that the elimination of all barriers can only happen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the church? The church is the place where we gather together, not because we all like the same things and we all look the same and we're all in the same season of life, but we gather together because there are no more barriers because Jesus is our peace. Verse 14 tells us it's only Jesus. In verse 16, he puts to death all enmity and hatred. Well, how does this happen? Verse 18, for through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus can put to death all enmity in the gospel. This is the beauty of the church. The church is the elimination of all barriers. And you know what? Our culture is quite skilled, and I think it's satanically fueled. It's quite skilled in establishing barriers. But the church says, oh, no, no. In the gospel and in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the elimination of all barriers. Let me give you a fourth description of the church from the book of Ephesians here, if you're taking notes. Number four, the church is, I love this. It's the place of hope. It's the place of hope. Now, earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you and I will read and be reminded (laughs) when we get beat up during the week and you're mocked and you're mistreated and you're unjustly treated and you're ridiculed and you're spit upon and you're harshly treated because you're a Christian. When you meet together with God's people, this is the place of hope. It's the place of hope. You see, we have good news for the depraved and the depressed. We have good news for the worriers and the worldly. We have good news for the self-righteous and the sin-indulgers. We have good news for the proud and the loud. We have good news for the immoral and the ignorant. We have good news for the money lovers and the man-pleasers. We have good news for the partiers and the gamers and the criminals and the hermits. And the good news is that hope is not found by believing in yourself. But hope is found by what God has mercifully achieved for sinners in Christ. That's our hope. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I call this, what a Christian was. 
what a Christian was. Verses 1 to 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children headed for wrath. I mean, was that you? That was me before God saved us. That's what a Christian was. Well, now verse 4, what a Christian is. Look at verse 4. But God. Great words. You were headed for wrath. You were dead in your spiritual relationship to God. You were, you were hateful. You were indulging in your own desires. You were living like the world. You were living like Satan, headed for judgment. But God. Being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. What is the church? It's the place of hope. You and I aren't perfect. But you and I love that phrase, but God. If this is who we were... But God had mercy on me. God made me alive. God in his sovereign mercy, his divine love has made me alive. By grace I'm saved. Look at verse 6. Look at the security of your salvation. And God raised you up with Jesus. God seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Look at verse 7. Here's the purpose of heaven. So that in the ages to come, God would show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. Heaven is meant to broadcast the glory of God that he has showered upon you and me. What an amazing God. What a great God. This is the place of hope. The church is the place of hope. What a Christian was. What a Christian is. Look at verse 8. For by grace you're saved through faith. And this does not come from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of your work so that no one may boast. The only way you can go to heaven, it's a gift of God. He has to do the work. What a Christian was. What a Christian is. And now verse 10. What a Christian does. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what we do. We, we, we are people of hope. We meet together around the gospel of hope. We praise the God who made us alive. And we are people who are his workmanship created for good works. And then chapter 3, verse 8. This is who a Christian adores. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Oh, the unfathomable. The NIV has boundless riches of Christ. Another English has the endless treasures of Christ. Another English translation has the the incomprehensible treasures of Christ. 
The exhaustless wealth of Christ. The blessings that cannot be measured. This is the place of hope. We don't come to preach ourselves or to feel good about ourselves or to bash the world. We come so that we might be reminded of the unsearchable riches of Christ. We love him and we worship him. This is our hope of heaven. We are a people of hope. We hope and know that one day all of our toils and sin and error and death and tragedy and persecution and temptation and heresy and satanic attack, it'll all be gone. So the church gathers as the place of hope because we are being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The gathering of the church is one of the best ways that God prepares you for heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, the church exists to protect and prepare you to meet your bridegroom. Jonathan Edwards says, one day the church will be brought to the full enjoyment of the bridegroom. All tears will be wiped away. There will be no more distance from Christ. And then you will dwell forever with Christ, your bridegroom. And Christ will give you all of his perfect love. And you will drink and swim in the ocean of his perfect love. We're people of hope. But our hope isn't here. And our hope certainly isn't found here. Our hope is found in Christ. It's not within myself and it's not in the world out there. Our hope is in Christ. If you're taking notes, number five, let me give you another heading. The church is the community of godly saints. The community of godly saints. What does that mean? That means when you and I meet together, we are a transformed people seeking to grow. We are a transformed people seeking to grow. What God has done in us, we don't live like we were, but we live new lives. Because God has made us new. We need each other in this membership, this body of Christ, this covenant commitment, one with another. We are committed to change. The church is the community of godly saints. I want you to look with me at chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now, what's the key idea in this section? The old has gone, and we are to walk in newness of life. Look at chapter 4, 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, Christian, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Meaning, don't live the way you used to live as a non-believer. Well, what's that like? Look at verse 18. Well, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their heart. And they are callous. Verse 19. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What's Paul saying? Christian, that's who you were. Don't live like that anymore. And if you're living like that, and that's your whole pattern of life, then you might not know the Lord. But Paul is saying, this is who you were. This is how the Gentiles lived. But God has saved you. Look at verse 20 now. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and you are taught in him. Well, how do we change? What's this community of godly saints? Look at 22. 
Three simple phrases. I've just hammered this into the minds of my kids. Verse 22, we are to put off. We lay aside the old man. What are the sinful habits that I got to put off in my life? Second, verse 23, we put in the word. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So when we meet together, we're a community of godly saints where we desire to put off sinful habits. We want to put in the word of God and be renewed in our minds. Verse 24, then we got to put on. We have to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we, we need to know that when we gather together as the church, we are a community of godly saints. We are not living like the world. The church should not be like the world. Sin is tolerated out there. It's not in here. Sin is celebrated in the world. It's not in here. Sin is condoned in the world. It's disciplined in the church. And the Bible says, as believers, we put off sinful habits. We want to be renewed by putting in the word into our minds. And then we want to replace those bad habits with putting on godly habits. 25. Well, when is the liar no longer a liar? It's not when he stops telling lies. It's when he puts on habits of telling the truth. Look at 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Look at 26. Be angry and do not sin. Well, when is an angry man no longer an angry man? Well, when he stops getting angry. No. When he learns to patiently and quickly deal with it so that he doesn't allow anger to boil and fester in his heart. 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Well, what about the thief in 28? When is a thief no longer a thief? Well, when he stops stealing. No, when he gets a job and he gets working and then he has enough money to give. 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, to have something to share with one who has need. Well, what about 29? What about the person with filthy words and critical and biting and sharp and ungodly and worldly words? 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So that it will give grace to those who hear timely words, helpful words, beneficial words, grace-filled words. Church family, this is my prayer for you. My prayer for me. My prayer for the elders. My prayer for the children. That we would be a community of godly saints. Spurgeon said, there is nothing which my heart so desires more than to see you, the members of this church, Distinguished for holiness, because that is the Christian's crown and glory. We are a community of godly saints. Next, in your outline, if you're taking notes, number six, what is the church? What do we need to know? Number six, the church is the place of prayer. Somebody comes up to the pastor and they say, man, you pray too much in the church service. What? What do you mean you pray too much in the church service? The church is the place of prayer. 
Leonard Ravenhill said, the true church lives and moves and has its being in prayer. Isaiah 56 verse 7, we are to be a house of prayer. You know what? We need more intimacy with God so we are not intimidated by man. We need more perseverance in prayer for more evidences of God's power. Ravenhill said the true church lives by prayer. And that's so true. That's so true. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul prays. And he prays by thanking God for the believers. Chapter 1, verse 15. I thank God for you. He says that in verse 16. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he prays for the church that they will know the hope of God's electing call. And that they will know the riches of the glory of heaven that awaits us. And then verse 19, he prays that they will know the greatness of God's power. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul prays that the believers would have strength. Strength with power in the inner man. And in verses 17 and 18, he wants you to know with all the saints the great love of Jesus for you. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Paul prays that you would know the love of Christ. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, Paul prays that in faith you would ask great things of a great God who can do far more than you could ask. In chapter 6, Paul prays that we would be alert in our prayer lives. Chapter 6 verse 18. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul prays for gospel advancement. Church family, we pray for our laborers. We pray for shepherds. We pray for saints. We pray for those in authority. We pray for the lost. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for our ministry engagements. We pray for our youth. We pray for our children. We pray for our evangelism outings. We pray for purity in the church and health in the church. We can't not pray. The day we stop praying is the day we ought to shut our doors. The church is the place of prayer. Number seven, let me give you a couple more. Number seven in your outline, the church. This is a tough one, but hear this. The church is the target of Satan's hatred. Now, when the Bible says in Ephesians 6... Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is not an animated movie scene. This is not some made up myth. This is true. Humanity has not changed. The evil one is still active. And he is just as active now as he was in the Garden of Eden. Believers in Ephesus, believers in St. Louis and believers everywhere around the world have the same need for Christ and for his almighty power. I wonder if Paul, in jail, in a Roman prison cell, armed to a Roman guard, I wonder if he was looking at a soldier and jotting down the different parts of armor, saying, Christian, we need to have that in our Christian lives as well. It's like Exodus 15.3, the Lord is a warrior. It's like Psalm 18, 39, you have clothed me with strength for battle. 
In Psalm 35, fight, O Lord, with those who fight with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Rise for my help. Now, with Satan, when we talk about Satan, we have to be careful because we don't want to fall to either extreme. Satan is the arrogant enemy. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people with guns. It's not with political leaders. Our real enemy is against the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness. It's Satan. Satan is an arrogant thug, full of malice and full of hatred. He loves chaos and he loves disorder. He hates Christ and everything that Christ is. Satan can't destroy you, so he'd love to defile you. Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he'd love for you to live a discouraged life. He'd love for you to be derailed and disqualified and distracted. He cannot possess you, Christian, but he'd love to instill doubt and pride and slander and lukewarmness toward Christ in you. What is the church? It's the target of Satan's hatred. Satan hates what we're doing. He hates when we gather. He hates when we sing. He hates the word of God open in front of you. He hates you praying. He hates us fellowshipping. Satan hates us. And that's why God says that we must take up the full armor of God so that we will resist. It doesn't say run away. It says resist. We don't rebuke the devil. We don't ignore the devil. We're not to be overly concerned with the devil, nor do we mock the devil. We stand firm against the devil. And we put on the armor of God. And you see that here in verses 10 to 20, that we are to have our loins girded with truth and the breastplate of righteousness and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And verse 16, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. We need all of that. I believe the greatest threat to the kingdom of Satan is an obedient church. The greatest threat to the kingdom of Satan is an obedient church. May God help us to be obedient. Two more. Number eight, what is a church? If you're taking notes, the church is the working of the triune God. It is the working of the triune God. I'm going to go to chapter one for this. If you and I were to go to a St. Louis Blues hockey game... After the hockey game, they have the three stars of a game. Might be a goalie or somebody who gets a goal or two. Somebody who makes a difference in the game. Kind of a difference maker. And they skate out and everybody cheers for three stars. We don't don't come together and have a new star every time we meet. We come together and our only star is the triune God. The Father. The Son and the Spirit. 
All glory to God for who he is and what he does. We boast in the working of God. We don't meet together to feel about our, feel better about ourselves. We don't focus on psychology and self-esteem and entertainment. We don't focus on the felt needs of people. We focus rather on God. So that we would elevate him in his saving majesty. So that we would elevate God in his unrivaled glory and his infinite mercy and his perfect accomplishing of salvation for us. The key word in these few verses that I want to read with you is the word boast, boast, boast or glory. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing as you're united to Christ. First, with God the Father, verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. In love, verse 5, the Father predestined. Us, and then he adopted us as sons. Verse 6, all to the praise of the glory of our God. You know people who glory in themselves. You know people who talk about themselves and they boast in themselves. Christians are those who boast in our God. Verse 7, not only do we boast in the Father, verse 7, we boast in the Son, the beloved Son. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So the Father elected us sovereignly. The Son sufficiently redeems us at the cross. And all of that, verse 12, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ, oh, that we would be to the praise of his glory. We worship God the Father. We worship Jesus the Son. And then verse 13, we also worship and boast and glory in the Spirit. Verse 13, in Christ, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed. You are protected. You are identified with. You are secure in the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, he is given as the pledge of our inheritance. Verse 12 ends to the praise of his glory. The Father elected, the Son redeemed, the Spirit regenerates and secures us, so we gather together to glory in God. There's nothing flashy about us when we meet. We're not trying to be entertaining. We, We don't need to take our cues from the world so that you feel comfortable in here like you would if you were at a movie theater. What attracts us together As we worship the triune God. And we boast in our Father. We boast in the Son. We boast in the Spirit. And all that brings us to one more. The ninth. The ninth feature of the church that we need to look at. Is the church number nine. Is the life context for service and love. It is the life context for service and love. 
According to the New Testament, your life should revolve around the church. According to the New Testament, the book of Philippians makes it especially clear, your life and my life revolves around the beauty and centrality and importance and the protection of the local church. An unchurched Christian would be an oxymoron in the New Testament. Somebody who claims to be a Christian but says, I've been burned by the church, I don't go to the church anymore. The New Testament knows nothing of that. The church is not a club that you use when needed. The the church is a family that you reunite with to celebrate Jesus. The church is not an obligation, but it's an affection. Verse 11 of chapter 4. God gives some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. God gives leaders. Why? In order to equip, verse 12, the saints to do the work of ministry. You say, Jeff, good. That's why we pay you. No, you pay me to equip you so that we together do the work of ministry. Every one of us should be on the field playing and doing the work of the game of ministry, to use that metaphor. What do we do? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That means our work is not done. There's a place for you to serve until every believer is totally mature. That means our work isn't done. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. And there's a lot of that in our world, isn't there? There's a lot of waves, a lot of ideologies, a lot of fear, a lot of psychologies, a lot of new movements, a lot of this and that. God has given the church to be the protection for you because you and I can't do it alone. And we weren't designed to do it alone. We need each other. We need the church. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. In all aspects into Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. So you say, well, Jeff, well, what can I do here? Maybe I'm too young or I'm too old or I, I'm just, I'm at home with my children or I'm homebound. What can I do in the church? You can do a lot. What are some examples of serving in the church? People share the gospel and wonder, is God calling me to do more ministry, more evangelism, maybe missions? It's when older, older members are discipling younger members. Let's have a phone call together. Let's pray. Anybody can do that. Come over for dinner. Let's speak of God's faithfulness and mentor them. It's when younger members drop by and visit the older members, the seasoned saints in the church, to sit and chat with them, to meet together, open the word, pray, and say, teach me how faithful God has been in your life. It's when there's increased praying in the church and more prayers that are centered on evangelism, souls to be saved, ministry opportunities, and begging God for revival. That's a ministry opportunity. You know that a church is thriving in ministry when there's less reliance on programs and there's more spontaneous ministry activities and engaging in ways to serve. 
It's when you have good conversations as you come in and you leave. Hey, brother, will you pray for me? I'm struggling this week. I've got this coworker. I've got this financial hardship. I'm battling this sin. Will you pray for me and ask me about it next week? You hear it. You pray for it. You pray right then and there. And then you follow up the following week. It's when there's increased joyful sacrificial giving. How can we cut some money this month so that we can give it to support this ministry or that evangelist or that street preacher or that family in need or whatever? It's when that man or that woman turns down that job offer, which would offer a whole lot more money, but they'd be traveling and they would miss a whole lot more church and opportunities because they want to serve their church faithfully. It's when husbands lead their wives sacrificially. What can I do to make you feel more loved and understood by me as your husband? It's when the wives submit to their husbands and the wife says to the husband, what can I do today to pray for you as you're going to work today? How can I make your day a little bit easier? It's when parents discipline their children in faith. Tonight for family worship, let's read the Bible and pray, for example, for our missionaries. It's a willingness to discipline an unrepentant and public sin that shames Christ and shames this church. It's when there's a pervasive fear of God and a seriousness amongst God's people. It's when a, a member reaches out to an unrepentant member in loving pursuit and says, If you get this voicemail, please call me back because we miss you and we want to see you back here. You see, this is what a church is. It's what a church does. The church is the life context of service and love. But you know what? There are two questions I have for all of us, even boys and girls, two questions. Number one, are you in this church? And I'm not asking, are you here sitting in Christ fellowship today? That's fine. But are you in the body of Christ? Has he joined you to himself in saving faith? Are you converted? Second, where are you serving? Where are you serving? Who are you serving? Who are you praying for? Who can you reach out to? Who can you have a phone call with? Who can you pray with? Who can you ask to sit with you, to go out for coffee after church some Sunday, to have a Sunday morning fellowship together, a brunch together? How can you be serving? Christian, here today, all of this, I trust, is a great encouragement and a reminder to you what a church is and the Lord's Supper, which we're about to have, is for you. I came across this, this little commitment that I want to read. It's my commitment to you, and I pray that it's your commitment to me and our commitment as the church to Christ. And I'll read this by way of conclusion. Maybe it'll prepare us for the Lord's Supper together. It's titled, I Will. I will have the attitude of Christ and put other church members before my own wants and desires. 
I will gladly participate in corporate worship with my fellow church members as long as I am physically able. I will get involved in a group or class or small group so that I might grow spiritually together with others and so that I might be accountable to other people. I will go and share the gospel with others in words and deeds and I will not be ashamed of my Savior. I will give abundantly and joyfully of the money, time, and resources that I have, knowing that God is the owner of all the things that I'm called to steward. I will participate in the life of my church because God leads me to do so, not because I feel compelled or because people force me to do so. I will focus on what Christ has done for me and not on the flaws of my church or the flaws of my leaders or the flaws of the members. I will pray that God will use me as an instrument to revive his church for his name and for his glory. What a great thing if we could all say, by the grace of God, I resolve To do that together. What a healthy local church we would be. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word, the book of Ephesians. Thank you for giving us such truth in such confusing and muddy times regarding church and what ministry is. Lord, thank you for clarity. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the word. Write your word upon our hearts that we would think on it, meditate on it, reflect on it. And encourage one another in this. In Jesus' name. Amen.